Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Um, we are in our second week of our new series. So if you weren't here last week, we are now going through the Gospel of Luke. And so we uh, picked up last week in Luke uh, chapter 3, and we looked at the baptism. We looked at uh, John the Baptist coming, proclaiming a baptism of repentance of sin. Uh, we saw Jesus' introduction to ministry. Um, but real quick, Luke was written um, by the author's name, Luke. Uh, he was a Gentile who was a physician, and he traveled around with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. Luke was a faithful friend. In fact, he was with Paul to the end. As Paul died, Luke was there with him. Uh, Luke refused to leave Paul. Um, and the Gospel of Luke was written around 58 to 65 AD. It was before the, the temple of Jerusalem was uh, destroyed uh, in 70 and Luke wrote to a, a specific person named Theophilus, right? It's a, a, a big name, but what it means is lover of God. And Theophilus was likely a Roman citizen. He's a Roman citizen of some wealth, of some status. And the gospel has come to Theophilus. He's heard, he's received Christ, but now he, he wants certainty. Is, is what I heard really true? Did what you tell me really happen? And so Luke is not only a doctor, but he's also a historian. And so he has been with Paul, and along his journeys, he has written down eyewitness accounts and testimonies about what he's seen and what others have reported from eyewitness accounts. And so he has recorded all these things into a a two-volume set, both Luke and Acts. Um, Luke writes both of them. And Luke talks about what Jesus began to do. Acts talks about what Jesus continued to do in his church. And Luke is a very interesting gospel because it's the only one that was written by a Gentile, someone that's not a Jew. And so it was written by someone that isn't a Jew to someone that isn't a Jew. And so it has really interesting themes in it, um, really peculiar ones that sometimes hit us uniquely as most often those that are not Jewish. And so we, uh, we see that it's written that we might have certainty, we might have clarity about who Jesus is, about what it is that he has done. And as we looked at last week, um, we saw the introduction of Jesus' ministry, that Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He goes and humbles himself underneath it, is baptized, and we hear the voice, the heavens open, and the voice of God the Father proclaiming, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form as a dove and fills and gives affirmation to Jesus. We are going to pick up now in Luke chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and grab and open up to Luke chapter 4. Um, we are actually skipping over uh, the genealogy. Um, I didn't know if you guys would be excited about us preaching through the genealogy. And I, it has a purpose, though. Uh, and so I want to give you some footnotes about why the genealogy is actually really important as we go into the temptation narrative. Um, what we see in, in, in Luke 3 and Luke chapter the, halfway through Luke chapter 4 is that we see the introduction to Jesus' ministry. We see what's called like the precursor of Jesus entering public full-time ministry. The baptism scene shows God affirmation, his love, his you know sending out of his son. And then the genealogy, what we see, is that Jesus is of the right pedigree to be the son of God. You see, there are lots of people that claim to be the son of God, but they didn't make them the son of God. They had to have the right lineage. They had to come from the right place. You see, with kings, you can't just decide you want to be a king, right? There has to, you have to come from a kingly line, a kingly descendant, uh, you have to be. And so Jesus shows, the genealogy shows that Jesus comes from, from Adam, who's the son of God, but he also comes from King David. And so Jesus is the right lineage. He has, is the, is the perfect descendant to be a king. 
And what we look at now as we go into the temptation, what we're going to see is that not only does Jesus have the right family line, but Jesus also has, is made of the right stuff to be a king. Because there are, there are people that maybe have the right pedigree to be a king, but they're not made of the right stuff. They shouldn't be a king because they're not equipped. They're not faithful to lead, to show themselves as a king. So we are going to be in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 13, and we're going to look at um, the temptation of the Son of God. So if you're there, um, please read along with me. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. So there's a big idea, something I think that this passage really says. There's lots of things we can take for, but I think the big idea that we see here is that Jesus is the true son of God that is faithful to God in the midst of temptation and trial. Jesus is the true son of God who is faithful to God in the midst of temptation and of trial. So we're going to break this down verse by verse. So first, let's look at the first two verses. It says, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. One of the first things I want us to look at in this passage is the idea that Jesus is human. Jesus is truly, fully human. You see, sometimes we have misconceptions about who Jesus is and about what he's like. Sometimes we think Jesus is like Superman, right? He's really just masquerading as a person, but really underneath, he's not really a human. He doesn't really feel pain. He doesn't really have hardships. He doesn't really face any struggles because it's really just pretend. He's just kind of wearing a mask. And so he doesn't really know what it's like for us And one of the things that we get clearly in this passage is that that's not true, and that's a lie. And one of the earliest doctrines to be universally accepted by the church is that the doctrine of the incarnation. Literally, what it means is that God is, Jesus is 100% man, 100% man, and yet he's also 100% God. Seemingly contradictory statements, but wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in an enigma, that God is both, that Jesus incarnates and is fully human. 
Because if you miss out, if you in your mind begin to think, well, Jesus really, he's really God, but he's, he just played as a human. He just acted as a human. He doesn't really put on humanity, swallowed up humanity in himself. Ephesians 2 talks about it. It says that though Christ was God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and of a servant, becoming nothing. If you don't believe that Jesus really took on humanity, then you rob yourself of some of the strongest hope and encouragement that Christianity brings to the table. Hebrews 4 15 through 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Have you ever gone through something deep, painful, and felt like you were all alone? Maybe it was a loss of a loved one. Maybe it was a breakup. Maybe it was a struggle with sin that was so deep and you just felt like nobody else knew what you were going through. Nobody else quite got it or understood. Now, have you been in a place where you were going through something so dark and so deep, so troubling of your soul, but yet someone else came along and they had gone through something so similar? That fellowship, it brought comfort to you. That sympathy that they were able to express to you brought hope and encouragement in your life. This is exactly what it's talking about. You see, if we think that, that Jesus is just plain human, that he's just putting a mask on, then we'll find no comfort in the fact that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And that word, sympathize, Right? It, it means to understand, it means to, to feel what we feel, to take in himself the same pain and sorrows that we have taken within ourselves. Jesus understands our suffering. He understands our temptations. He understands our weaknesses. He was beset with them himself. And it's because he became like us that he clothed himself with humanity and with frailty, being hungry feeling betrayal, understanding righteous anger. All of these things are intended to bring comfort to our souls as we go through the hardships of our life. That we know that God isn't simply aloof, that he's not distanced, but in fact he knows exactly what we feel and exactly where we are. In fact, he has experienced it to a far greater degree than we have. And we'll talk about that more later. Jesus has experienced the full weight of every temptation. And we see this in 1 John 2.16. We see the temptations that the world experiences. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He talks about that, that the temptations that the world has to offer are summarized in these three things, in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's what we see as we look at our text is that Jesus was tempted in each one of these categories and yet showed himself, showed himself faithful in them. He was victorious. Now, one of the questions I think should be obvious to us as we, as we start first reading through these, these couple verses is... It seems odd, right? Jesus has just had this mountaintop experience. 
I mean, right, he's entering into his public ministry. The Father has spoken a booming voice from heaven. He sees the Holy Spirit. I mean, celebration party, like love has just been lavished on Jesus. So he has gone from this mountaintop experience, the height of heights. And now he's, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit leads him. Right, The Spirit is leading him, but where is it that the Spirit leads him? He leads him into the wilderness. What's in the wilderness? The devil. To be tempted. Now, wait, wait a second. Hold on now. Shouldn't this cause us a little bit of confusion? Because the question, at least, that raises in my mind was, is God tempting Jesus? Right? God doesn't tempt us, does he? I mean, we, we look and you see in Jesus' prayer, he says, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. I mean, James, verses, chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we have these verses, these explicit verses that say, well, hold on now, God doesn't tempt anybody. God doesn't, and, and Jesus prays, let us not be led into temptation. But yet we have clear examples, right? I mean, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. We have the book of Job, where you look and you see, man, Job was tempted. I mean, Jesus said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, his faithfulness? I mean, you look at David. David was tempted with Bathsheba. You look at Peter. Peter was tempted. Look at Paul. He was tempted. So you have all of these men of God that were faithfully following the Lord and yet the Holy Spirit, and they're led to be tempted. But yet we have these other scriptures that say that God does not tempt. And so we're left with this kind of conundrum. It says, how do we resolve this? How do we make sense of this tension that we see in the scriptures? I think it revolves around the word temptation. What does it exactly mean? It's parasmos in the Greek. And it's used, it's one word, but it has two different two different meanings, two different definitions. You see, when we hear temptation, we automatically think enticement to sin. Right? But it also can mean a test or a trial. And so that's exactly what we see in James 1, 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, parasmus, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effects that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, James 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, parasmus, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. So what we see is that God most certainly tests us. He puts us in situations and in circumstances where we are tested. But God does never, God never leads us to be enticed by sin. God never puts or solicits a desire for sin in our hearts. He never leads us to a position to where, or, or, or solicits that from a, our desires or puts that desire in our heart. But you see, the, the interesting thing is that both of temptation and tests happen in the same moment. You see, God uses a situation for testing, but Satan comes and uses the same situation and tries to use it for temptation to lead to enticement and sin. So why is it that God tests us? 
And I think I would love to spend more time, but just a couple things that we need to see the value of testing if we're to understand why God does it. One of the first things that God does in testing is he, he reveals. He reveals. You know, I think about school in college, and one of the things that a test was intended to do was it was intended to reveal what you actually knew, right? Because if you didn't test, you could just, you know, float your way through. Um, and so a test was intended to clarify. It was intended to open up and show what was truly there. And you see, that's one of the things that God does in tests, is oftentimes we're deceived about where we actually are and about what's really in us. And so God tests us that we might not be deceived, that we might realize where we're actually at. And so he tests us to reveal our heart. And you see that, you see that all across the scriptures with Abraham, right? Abraham, God tested Abraham by telling him to sacrifice his only son. And after Abraham was faithful, God says, now I know, I know. God knew all along, but there was something that Abraham learned in that. There was something that Abraham demonstrated in that. He demonstrated what was in him. He revealed his true nature, what he truly desired and longed for. And so testing in your life will reveal your heart. It will reveal your desires, what you really long for in your life. Not only that, but testing actually strengthens us. And when you think about a gym or going to work out, you're testing yourself. Each time you're going to break it down, and and the more you do that, the stronger you get. When you are able to resist temptation or able to say no to it, it actually bolsters your strength to continue to resist. And so one of the reasons God tests is he tests in order that you might grow stronger. In order that as you build resistance, same thing as weights, you add more resistance as you grow stronger, and that is what enables you to grow stronger, is God continues to test us that we might grow stronger, that we might grow more in our faith and our trust in him and who he is and what he's done. The other one, another reason that God tests is because it's through these tests that he shows himself to others. And we think of Daniel. Daniel was tested. So was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Why were they tested? They were tested that their faith might be demonstrated to others. It's as they were tested in the fiery furnace that they got to, to demonstrate and others got to see the glory and the goodness of God. And it's sometimes only in tests that other people will get to see the gospel in your life. Well, they get to see that God is better than. God is better than your physical well-being. God is better than wealth. God is better than whatever else it is that he is trying and testing. And you get to testify to it in the midst of trials. And that's what the world is desperately looking for, something that's better than what they have. Not only that, but God uses tests to prepare us. He uses it to prepare us for future moments. Whether it's to give a testimony to somebody else that they're going through a trial, or maybe it's a future test that we're going to face ourselves. But God tests us in order that we would be prepared for what's coming on in the future. God has purpose in his testing. But Satan seeks to take these tests, and he seeks to manipulate them. And he seeks to take them to entice us to sin. Right? Because we face, I mean, we face these temptations every day. It's not like once in a blue moon we're going to face a temptation. Like We wake up facing temptation. We wake up facing tests and trials. And every event is an opportunity to trust God or to turn from God. Every moment, every second offers an ability to be found faithful or to turn and to rest in ourselves. I mean, we see this all the time. Right? I mean, you, you, you drive to church, you're running late. You know, somebody cuts in front of you. You know, not only do they cut in front of you, but then they begin to slow down. 
right? And so now you are late to church. You have somebody that is rude and has cut you off, right? And now you're tested and you're, now you have to make a decision. Am I going to be tempted? Am I going to fall to this? Because now you, you have an opportunity. Perhaps there's other people in the car, young ones, and you have an opportunity to show grace and humility and say, you know, maybe they just don't know how to drive today. Maybe we're just going to give them some grace, give them a pass. Or you have an opportunity to be tempted and to lean into frustration and anger and bitterness. And maybe you say some things you shouldn't have said. And so you go into temptation. And so every moment is an opportunity. Take Maybe it's a fight with your spouse. Right? Maybe they want something done a certain way and you just grew up doing it a different way. And all of a sudden now you guys disagree. Right? And now, not only are you disagreeing this, but everything in the past, all the other disagreements start popping up in their ugly head. Right? And it's no longer about who, how you folded the laundry, but it's about your mom and how she did this and his dad and how he did that. And everything starts coming up, right? And so you're, you're, you're tested right then. What is God doing in that moment? God's giving you an opportunity to demonstrate humility and love and grace. To show that what's important isn't how the laundry is folded or what your mom did or what my dad said. But it's rather instead to show that what matters is that you're more important than those things. And that I love you more than that and I'm willing to be wrong and I'm willing to endure whatever it looks like. Because I want to show you that God loves me not because I was right or because I had things together or because I came and folded my laundry the right way. God loves me because he's gracious and because he's kind and because he chooses to. But the temptation is to say, they're always wrong. They're always so argumentative. They're just so prideful and self-righteous. They always make this into an argument. And then we grow bitter and frustrated and distant. You see, each thing has an opportunity to be a test and lead us to growth and lead us to maturity. And at the same time, can be a temptation that leads us to turn away from God and to trust in ourselves. Maybe it's uh, sickness. Maybe it's pain. You've been diagnosed with something or you have now a condition that they say is going to be there for the rest of your life or you have a loved one that's going through something that could take their life. That's a test for sure. What's God doing in it? Well, hopefully, truthfully, God's helping us to realize our frailty. God's bringing the truth and the reality that life is but a mist here for a second and then gone. He's helping us to realize our dependency upon Him, that we don't have everything together and that we desperately need Him. But what's Satan seeking to deceive us into? He's seeking to deceive us into bitterness into frustration, into isolation. Nobody really understands what I'm going through. It's better if I just suppress the pain. I shouldn't really talk through this. God, you did this. And so we're tempted to blame God. You see, everything from the big things to the trivial things is an opportunity. It's a test and a temptation for us to either turn to God or for us to turn from God. One of the other things that we learn as we look at the passage in just the first couple verses is we learn that Jesus is the true Son of God. 
right? We, as Christians, 2,000 years later, kind of take that for granted. Jesus, you know, yes, you're the son of God. But that would have been a shocking term that a man can be called the son of God. And we see that, that Luke is actually setting up for this very theme, right? At the very last thing, if we were just to go up one verse in verse 38 in chapter 3, we see that he ends, Luke ends his genealogy with Adam, and he calls Adam the son of God. And then immediately he transitions to talking about Jesus. And not only does he talk about Jesus, but then he goes and he talks about Jesus being led into the wilderness. And so clearly Luke's first century hearers would have understood. Theophilus would have known when he's talking about wilderness, he's bringing reminders of Israel. Because you see, there are two people, there's two other entities that are referenced as sons of God in the Old Testament. Namely, Adam and also the nation of Israel. They're both were titled as the Son of God or Sons of God. And Jesus comes on the scene showing that he is the true Son of God who succeeds where they failed. Right? Whereas Adam was placed in a garden with beauty all around and yet was tempted and gave in, Jesus is placed in a barren wilderness, desert, where he's in isolation, beauty stripped from his sight, And he's tempted and succeeds. Whereas Israel was crowned and given God's presence and sent out into the wilderness where they were tempted and rebelled against God, Jesus is found faithful and succeeds. Jesus is the true son of God who comes to reverse the curse of sin that Adam has brought in. Jesus is the true Israelite who comes and is found faithful when his people are found faithless. You see, Israel was intended to come and to shine God's light into the world. They were to be a testimony to the Gentiles, to show to the world God's gracious love, his mercy, but yet they failed. Jesus comes and he shows that he is the true Israelite who is going to demonstrate God's faithfulness and grace to the world, to rescue and to redeem Jesus is the true Son of God who is found faithful. Moving on, we see in in verses 3 through 4, it says, Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. What we see Jesus being tempted by here is Jesus is tempted by the lust of the flesh. Right? And what exactly is the lust of the flesh? The lust of the flesh is any sinful desire that seeks to satisfy our physical appetite. Right? Whether it is gluttony and we're simply eating just to eat rather than eating for sustenance. Whether it's sexual immorality and we want to pleasure our body in the way that we see fit, how and when we choose. Whether it's laziness and we don't want to work. Instead, we want to lay around. All these tons of different ways in which we satisfy the, the lust of the flesh. And Jesus felt this. Have you ever been really hungry? Have you ever gone a day without eating food? We're Americans, so most of us probably not. Jesus was hungry. He went 40 days without eating, on the verge of starvation, feeling starvation at this point body most likely shriveled 
because of the effects of it. And Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, why don't you satisfy your appetite? Right? God doesn't want you to go hungry, does he? God wants you to be fed and satisfied, right? Well, why don't you just turn this stone into bread? And why don't you just feed yourself? Jesus turns to him and says, there's something more valuable than food. It reminds me of another passage. In John chapter 4, you see Jesus talking with a, another woman at a well. And, uh, and the, his disciples are gone to get them food. Right? They're gone. The whole troop of them is gone. And Jesus is having this conversation with this, this woman at this well. And they come back to him. They said, we brought food. And he turns and he says, my food, what satisfies me, what fulfills me and sustains me is to do the will and to accomplish the work of him who sent me. And so Jesus talks about what truly satisfies him isn't physical nourishment, but it's instead accomplishing the purpose for which he was, he was brought here. We see it also in, uh, in Deuteronomy 8.3. It's the verse that Jesus is quoting. It says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What truly satisfies, what truly sustains us isn't just physical nourishment, but it's instead God's word. It's God's presence. This is what we were created for. And often, I mean, this is why Jesus didn't eat. Okay, sometimes we think, well, Jesus is out in the wilderness and he just, there was just no, no food out there, so he was just hungry. Most commentators are going to tell you, actually, though, that Jesus was fasting. Jesus was intentionally not eating. Why? To prepare himself. Jesus was preparing for the coming battle that he would have. And so why did he not eat in that preparation? Because he realized that there was something more important to this fight than physical nourishment. That he needed God's presence. That he desperately longed for the nourishment that satisfies. And it was God's word. And this is the whole point of fasting. right? Fasting is intentionally depriving yourself of whether it's food or entertainment or something in order that you might feast on something else, of something that's far greater importance and value. And so the reason that you would give up food for a time period is because you're wanting to saturate yourself within God's word and God's presence and because it is what really nourishes your soul. And Jesus does this in preparation for the fight that he's coming into. We also see a little bit of the nature of temptation. So, one of the things that temptation does is that it's like a mirage. The whole idea of a mirage is that you're out and most often you're out in a desert, right? And you're so hungry, you're so thirsty, that all of a sudden you begin to see things that aren't really there. Right? I've had this in very brief instances out in the kayak when I'm stranded, not able to get in. Land seems so close, but yet it's so far away. <laughs> but you see things that are, are either not there or closer than they're there that, that you portray things because you're so desperate to have it. And this is what temptation does, is that it puts something that we think is going to satisfy us. It paints this oasis of perfection, this beautiful, perfect place that we'll finally be able to relax and enjoy. And all the hardships that we're facing, all the desert and the wilderness that we're in is just going to fade away. 
and promises it outside of God. Because you see, everything that Jesus was tempted with, they were things that were already his and were going to be his once more. But they weren't his yet. He had to instead be patient. He had to wait. He had to go through the suffering and the hardship. And Satan held these things out as a mirage. So Jesus, why don't you just satisfy your hunger now instead of waiting? Why don't you just prove yourself as the Son of God right here and right now instead of being patient and trusting your Father? Jesus refused, turning from the mirage. And he walked the faithful road. And what happens for us when we chase the mirage? What happens in our lives when we think that those things are going to satisfy? Well, what happens in a desert when you continue to chase it? You go on and you go on and you go on and you go on, never finding it, never being satisfied, continually hungry and thirsty. If only we will follow what Christ and what God has laid forth for us, we will find satisfaction in his time and in his will. We see next Jesus is tempted with the lust of the eyes. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and the glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is tempted with the lust of the eyes. And what is the lust of the eyes exactly? The lust of the eyes is is anything that we see or that we look at and that we covet, that we desire. Whether it's looking at pornography or whether it's coveting wealth and status. We see something that someone else has and we covet it for ourselves. And this is exactly what Satan is doing with Jesus. right? He takes him up and for a moment in time, God has given Satan dominion and authority over this world he is the ruler of this present dark age and so satan takes jesus up and shows him the beauty and the splendor of everything the world has to offer its riches its wealth everything that he can muster and he says if you will but bow down and worship me i will give you all of this jesus sees through the mirage and he says no you shall worship the lord your god serve him only And it's so important, this key that he says. He says, worship the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve. And I love that passage because what it does for me is it really clarifies. You know, oftentimes we really are deceived. We we self-deceive ourselves. We don't really know what's going on. And so what this does is it really clarifies. It says you want to know what you worship. What do you worship? What does your life revolve around? What do you serve? What are you serving? Because what you're serving declares what you worship. You're making an exchange. All of us make an exchange by what we're serving. And he says, you shall serve the Lord your God only. And so, does service to God come first in your life? Or do other things? Does work, family, recreation, entertainment, do those things take priority over God's presence in your life, over being in community with his people? He says that, that it, it, we're making an exchange. Because you see, Satan tempts us in the same way that Jesus is tempted. And he says, if you will just make this exchange, if you will just put education above me, above God, then I'll grant you the dreams that you have so longed for. 
If you'll just put sports, if you'll just put your family, if you'll just put your spouse above God, then you know what you've so longed for will finally be yours. And it's a deception. It's a lie. And you'll continue to feel dry and continue to feel empty. And the dreams that you thought were so amazing will feel hollow and empty when accomplished. What are you serving? It demonstrates that which you worship. As we declare and as we move with our actions into repentance and serve God and put him as first in our lives and our priorities, it guides our worship. We go on and we see Jesus is tempted with the pride of life. In verse 9 it says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is the last temptation that Jesus is faced with, the pride of life. What is the pride of life? It's taking your identity and your stature apart from God. It's instead of wanting to honor and submit to God, it's saying, I want to be God. And you see, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did when they saw that the fruit was desired to make one wise. Is that we don't need God to be God, we want to be God. And so it's us on our own, apart from God, trying to establish our identity. Trying to show that we are unique and special, whether it's by how we work, or whether it's by our morality and saying, look at how more how moral we are in comparison. Look at how much time we give in comparison. And we find our sense of worth and identity in these things rather than in God. And this is exactly what Satan was seeking to do with Jesus. As he was seeking to say, why wait to have your glory? Why wait to, to demonstrate your glory? You can have it now. You don't need to go through the cross. You don't need to go through suffering, Jesus. Instead, you can just forget the suffering. If you would just come and do it my way, it's so much easier. It's so much quicker. Jesus refuses, knowing the test that he's being put underneath. And he resists. Satan seeks to deceive us likewise, by seeking to establish our identity on our own, apart from God. He misquotes scripture to see to do it too. You notice that the first two that Satan tempts Jesus, he he just goes at him. But then this last time, he twists and perverts the scriptures. He uses Psalm 91 verses 11 through 2, and he misquotes and takes it out of context. If you actually go back and look in Psalm 91, the psalm is actually all about trusting in God and his sufficiency and his goodness towards you. And so too, Satan will sometimes take scripture and he'll bend it. He'll misuse it. He'll take it out of context and pervert it. We end by looking at verse 13. It says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan knows when we're weak. He knows the opportune time. What is it that you're tempted with? And when is it that you're most tempted Jesus knew that it was temptation. I think that's one of our, our hardest things is sometimes we don't know that it's actually a temptation. And we don't know when we're tempted. If we would think about this more like a battle and more like a war, we might do better to think about the strategy of our enemy and what it looks like to prepare. Jesus prepared 
in two ways. One, by, by knowing and loving God. And second, by using his word. One of the things that I think marvels me the most is that um, Jesus doesn't argue with Satan. Instead, he just quotes scripture. I don't know about you, but most of the time I like argue. <laughs> like I like start like bannering back and forth, especially in the midst of temptation. You start arguing kind of like with yourself and with him. And, and next thing you know, like it's gone by a while and you're, you're like now convincing yourself why it's okay to do it instead of actually being on the opposite side of fighting against it. And you notice that Jesus doesn't banner back and forth. Instead, he simply stands upon what God's word has said. He speaks it, and that's sufficient. Do we know God's word? Is it hidden in our hearts? Is it what we use for our defense? Or do we lean back on our own strength, on our own ability to try to get us out of temptation, to try to fight our way? There's two ways that we can read the passage Two big ways that people have read this passage. The first one is that we can see that Jesus is uniquely able and strong. That he faced the temptations that we can never face. Or we can look at this passage and we can see it as a blueprint for how we can battle and win temptation. You see, a lot of times people look at the passage and they say, Hey, you know, we're just going to follow this blueprint and exactly how Jesus won, that's how we're going to win. And that's a secondary meaning. The primary meaning is for us to see Jesus, that he alone is the one that faced the temptations that every single one of us have yielded to, and yet he succeeded where we failed, that he was faithful and persevered where we have given up and turned around. And it's only, it's only by seeing his strength, it's only by seeing his, his goodness that we are then able to fight. That moves us into loving God more when you behold Jesus in the passage, when he is who you most want and when he is in his glory is what you most see in the scriptures. It moves you to love him and desire him more. And that is what helps you fight temptation, is a deeper love for Christ. It's not just having a bunch of lists to do's. Well, if I just memorize this scripture and if I apply it in this situation, yeah, that might be handy. But guess what? The reason that Jesus quoted those things was because he was in love with his father. It was because he desired his father more than those things. And that has to be what we see in the passage in saying that, I want to finish with by quoting C.S. Lewis. He says, A silly idea is current. The good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus is the only strong one among us. Who knows the full weight and the full burden of temptation? Who never yielded to its strength, but instead continued wave after wave, wind after wind, pushing his way through. 1 John 5, 4, it says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, we overcome the world by being in Jesus. His victory is is our victory. Our hope is in him.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are strong when we are weak, that though we might yield to temptation, you never did. And so help us, God, to find our strength in your strength. God, that you, um, you love your Father and you obeyed him on our behalf. Help us, God, help us today to realize the things that we're tempted with, the exchanges that we're making, the mirages that we're chasing after, and help us to turn from them, God. Help us to see that there are so many opportunities every day to demonstrate that we trust you and that we love you, Father. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.